Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station's destructive power on your home planet of Alderaan. Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't You will possibly... prefer another target, a military target? Then name the system. I grow tired of asking this, so it'll be the last time. Where is the rebel base? Dantooine. They're on Dantooine. There. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue with the operation. You may fire when ready. What?! You're far too trusty. Dantooine is too remote to make an effective demonstration, but don't worry. We will deal with your rebel friends soon enough. Commence primary ignition. Welcome to Blop Culture, the podcast that asks the question, can three guys spend an hour talking about everything and nothing at the same time? I'm John Podhoritz in New York City, with me as always in Washington. Well, I'm a Jew, so I always answer a question with a question. So, uh, Jonah Goldberg in Washington. Hi, Jonah. Hey, John. How are you? Uh, you know, I could be better, but you know, I could be worse. And Rob Long, are you in New York? Or are you in, I'm in LA? I'm in New York. I'm in New York. I'm in New York. You Rob can tell in New York because I, 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 I enjoyed your very New York response to Jonah's question. I could be better. It could be worse. Eh. I saw the Colin Quinn eh. play last night, uh, and it was fantastic. But he does a great um tour tour d'horizon of New York City, and uh, once or twice. Uh, John Pedoritz makes a, an appearance, not in name, but just in attitude. Just so. in spirit, <laughs> yes. So Colin Quinn, the former uh, Weekend Update anchor on, on Saturday Night Live, has spent the last four or five years doing these one-man shows uh, in New York on a variety of topics. One was about race. The one that yeah. I guess Rob is talking about now is a sort of a story about New York well, City, and they're, they're very inventive and clever. Yeah. Very clever. They're all about. I mean, we don't. I mean, I just wanted to jump in here. We we can talk about anything we want, but they're all about ethnicity, and he's very frank and funny about ethnicity, and um, it's it, it it it's a shocking reminder of how, um, in in humor anyway, of how the funniest thing to make the funniest thing there is is are, are people's ethnicity and uh, habits of their ethnicities and all that sort of things. Uh, that those are off limits. And so he kind of goes and gives you a little tour of why New Yorkers are like New Yorkers, starting from the uh, the Indians on Manhattan Island and the Dutch and the British and everyone, all the way up. And it's really, really funny. Um, and you just think to yourself, good Lord, this used to be natural. This used to be classic humor. But instead, um, these days, we're not allowed to make fun of it. So Colin Quinn's got to do it on stage. You know, uh, as the editor of a – I edit a Jewish magazine called Commentary, and every month we run a Jewish joke. And it's always very interesting to to see how people mm-hmm. respond to it. And many people get enraged 
uh, by it because they don't entirely understand what's being Wait, made fun of. You, you mean you, you're, the readers of commentary who are predominantly Jewish, you could say, right? Yeah. Um, they get enraged by the fact that you put a Jewish joke in there? Oh, yeah, because, you know, oh, it's like a funny. classic, oh, no, because they, they find it insulting or they think it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, well, it is it's Semitic. Bit. Yeah. But, you know, it's all, all Jewish jokes are about, you know, puncturing the pretensions and fantasies of, of, right. of, of Jews, uh, other Jews often puncturing their, their, their pretensions. And so, like, this morning I got an email from somebody. I have a joke about a Jew who goes into a – basically into, a, like, a redneck bar in, in, in Texas and, uh, and some cowboy guy comes in and says, I hear there's a Jew here. <laughs> you know, he like cowers in the corner. All right, where are you? Show yourself, Jew. Come on out, Jew. And then finally, he you know he's too embarrassed to hide, and he raises it and says, "Yes, I'm I'm a Jew." And the cowboy says, "Well, come on now. We need to make a minion, which is a, <laughs> which is a which is that you need ten men." Uh, in to form a prayer group in in in, in Judaism. <laughs> I thought it's gonna be. <laughs> there's so many punchlines on that. Well, come on uh, out here. Now I need some help with my taxes. Well, exactly. <laughs> but in this case, it was yeah. We need to make a meeting. So then somebody sent me this like long email about how you know in Texas now there are many philo-Semitic Christians, and you know there's uh, the Christians uh, United for Israel, and you know perhaps you should you know write articles about that that kind of thing. So so ethnicity is always a very yeah, but it's always forever. funny. It's always, it's always uh, funny. In, in Colin in Colin Quinton, his, his I don't want to give away all the jokes. He, he has a couple of great observations, but one funny joke about it. He said when the Jews arrived, he said, we, so, so first of all, the, when the Irish arrived, there was no Statue of Liberty, right, which kind of informs how they treated the home they came to. Um, uh, there was no, no 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 lady in the harbor uh, welcoming them. When the, the Italians arrived, of course, then there was this. There was the Statue of Liberty was there by then, which gave them this. So, the, oh, Mama, look, you know, look, she's there. You know, the Bella, um, because they're so emotional. When the Jews arrived, like there wasn't much for them to do um, uh, because you know, the Irish were carpenters and the Italians were doing something else, and so they had to sort of figure out. So, so someone came to the Jews and said, "Listen, we need because there are all these sweatshops. We need uh, someone who's willing to complain about working conditions." <laughs> That's of every Jew race. <laughs> That's why they became union organizers. Uh, and by the way, by the way, to not to not to plug a, a television program with which you, Rob Long, are, are not associated, but well, that um, means every, a, every, all of them actually at this point. But but go ahead. There is a very exciting new situation comedy on of all networks, NBC, a network that hasn't had a good situation comedy in about 150 years, called the Carmichael Show, which is basically about a middle class black family in Charlotte. Uh, North Carolina, and um, it is entirely about life and blackness, and is very daring and very funny. And I, I commend it to everybody. NBC, yeah. of course, being stupid, thought that it was going to be a flop, and put it on in the summer to burn it off. They made six episodes to burn it off, and it was an unexpected success. Only unexpected because. Uh, people there are stupid. So uh, because it's it's a funny and really original, um, and I commend it to everybody in, in terms of exactly this kind of thing, which is sort of ethnic humor, which is funny to people, and particularly when it's honest and doesn't play you know games and isn't dishonest about it. So having gone gone through our ethnic humor uh, opening, um, I, I want to point out to you guys: we're recording this on a on a on a Monday morning at the end of October, and uh, uh, this morning Donald Trump uh, went before a town hall 
on the Today Show. And at some point in the course of the Today Show, when you know asked about his life experience, he he acknowledged as to how he has had tough times. For example, at one point, his father had to make him quote a small <laughs> loan of a yeah. million dollars unquote. So this was an effort by Donald Trump to kind of make the case that he's just like everybody else. He's been through tough times. He's had to turn yeah. to the folks for a little support. You know, a million dollar loan from his dad. Um, and, you know, this then raises the question I know everyone has been talking for months about how maybe the Trump bubble will burst. Maybe, you know, at some point it's not going to work anymore. But, you know, listening to something like that, I mean, again, it's one of those things where any other candidate said anything like that, that would be the end of him. But this may be. This is a this is a gaff of a different order from the. Other <laughs> oh no, you're not really going to no. go there, are you? No. Well, that's, it, there's so many people have died on that ravine, John. Oh well, that's, that's why is, that's why I'm hesitant. That's why I'm hesitant to say it. But I'm just saying, does anybody really? Yeah, yeah. You know, oh really? You're just a rhino to say that. You know, his father giving him a loan of a million dollars. You know that that <laughs> that's like. I mean, every who doesn't have that uh, situation in their life? Am I am yeah, I wrong? I, I think you're probably wrong, not because you should be wrong, right? I mean, not, not like – I mean, you should be right, but there have been a hundred of these things that he has done that should have blown him up, right? I mean, the, going after Ben Carson for being a Seventh-day Adventist is like one of the great violations of social conservatism, of sort of attacking people's religion, particularly a good, you know, a good mainstream Christian religion. You know, um, and that isn't killing him. I mean, as someone who still argues, it just just happened. That that literally just happened two days ago. I mean, we don't know. We don't know what impact that's going to have. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But I mean, we can go back. I mean, uh, his you know putting his sister on the Supreme Court, who's a crazy pro-choicer, attacking John McCain for being a failure as a POW. I mean, there've been a lot of these going after Megyn Kelly. Um, and of course, you know, going after me, which really should have disqualified him, right, in the oh, eyes of everybody. I but totally um, goes without saying. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of I, I'm with Rob. I'm done saying, ah, this, this is it. You know, it'll happen when it happens. But um, I, you know, the ability of his biggest fans to be immune to any kind of charges of inconsistency or outrage of anything he does, I just now I now consider it to be absolute. Uh, yeah. I mean, the weird thing about it is that it, it, it actually echoes a little bit that sort of peevish, not peevish, but like that poor me, a uh, little pampered, over, over pampered, spoiled rich kid attitude that, that, that was a little, was evident in Jeb Bush's comments this past weekend about, hey, listen, you know, that's the kind of person you want. You just vote for Trump. Oh, I got other stuff I could do. I mean, it really does feel like if, if, if we had just flipped those comments, um, and Jeb Bush had said, hey, listen, I had some tough times. My dad had lent me a million dollars. And Donald Trump had said, hey, I got other stuff I can do. I don't need this. Um, we wouldn't it – wouldn't, it wouldn't jar us. We'd assume that the, the, those, both those comments fit both those men. Uh, and yet both of those men are seen as like the polar opposites. But in fact, there seems like a, there's a lot of similarity there, at least in these two comments. Yeah, but that Jeb, that Jeb Bush comment is the comment of somebody who appears to understand that he is, you know, he is going down for the third time. He's like, there's yeah. a lot of other fun stuff I could be doing. I mean, if you don't like me, fine, vote for Trump, fine, what the hell? 
don't talk to me. You know, that is, that is a, that it was a, an incredibly striking moment, you know, because it, everyone's been noticing this, you know, incredibly sharp decline in Bush's poll numbers over the last five months. I mean, he's gone effectively from, right. you know, between 15 and 20 percent to between 5 and 6%. Now, I think the polls are bad, but when you have a secular trend of that size over this period of time that is reflected in almost every survey, you have to assume that it's very real. He just you know, cut his budget by 40%, and it turns out, it may well turn out, that everything that uh, Democrats and liberals have been screaming about, about the evil of the Citizens United decision making possible the creation of these super PACs, which are going to basically change politics as we know it. So Jeb Bush has raised $100, raised $100 million for a super PAC. But his campaign, which is how he needs to run for president, is right. obviously you know, running out of money. And that super PAC can sit there with $100 million and, and, uh, and our, our mutual friend Mike Murphy, who was running that super PAC, legally cannot in any way, shape, or form call Jeb Bush and say, what do you want me to do? He's not allowed to. That he would go to jail for doing right. that. Right. No, that's right. So, that's right. So it may turn out that this whole thing about the super PACs and the this and the blah 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 is itself <laughs> is itself you know was itself an, an incredible blunder, an incredible political blunder by the Republicans to shovel all right. of the money of the campaign into well, these you know, unregulated well, into these unregulated entities because it is starving the actual. Of any money, nobody's well, campaign has any money. Well, I mean, Jeb is really the only big front runner. I mean, Marco Rubio's got plenty of funders, and the and the the super PACs are. are I mean, I know this sounds silly. They're, they are controlled by people who are not a lot, who are not who are aligned with a campaign, but are not obligated. So if um, if the if the people behind who run that Jeb's Right to Rise super PAC decide, you know what? Let's start running pro uh, pro Rubio uh, ads, or let's let's start uh, let's start running against Trump. That's going to benefit everybody. I mean, the, the you're, you're correct that it's a um, that it's probably a, statist- a, a tactical blunder on the part of a specific candidate. But I'm not sure that those funders were saying, "Well, I'm going to give some to the I'm going to give to the campaign and not give to the pack, or give to the pack not give to the candidate." They chose the pack precisely because it offers them this way out of this hedge that really? they. I think say, I'm not sure. I mean, I, it's, maybe it, oh, go, it seems sorry, to me that the blunder the blunder is that Jeb Bush thought he was going to be this shock and awe wonderful candidate. And that the there that it was his turn, and that the the universe was ready for the third Bush presidency, right? And so that is what has sort of made the super PAC thing seem so weird. I mean, what, what to me is I think sort of fascinating is, you know, it's funny. I wrote a USA Today column about a month ago um, about why Citizens United was a good thing because you just look at the free can campaign ad Saturday Night Live gave to Hillary Clinton and it sort of illuminates yeah. how like the people who don't like Citizens United they're perfectly fine with the New York Times and NBC and ABC being able to uh, editorialize endorse you know as they see fit but when private citizens who don't have access to a newspaper want to have that same power um, they freak out and I was amazed I mean it, it's, it's it is now just simply an article of faith that Citizens United is so evil I mean Hillary Clinton one of her four main promises when she announced for president was that she was willing to amend the First Amendment 
to get rid of Citizens United. I mean, normally you would think any talk of amending the First Amendment would be so friggin' radioactive. And yet it's just taken as a given that, that if that's what it takes, it, it's worthwhile. And meanwhile, it turns out that even though Jeb, with all of these institutional advantages, ha- can raise $100 million for a super PAC and yet still can't buy the election. Everyone thinks these super PACs are going right. to buy elections, right. and they're not doing that at all. I mean, that's sort of remarkable to me, and it's, it's, it's reassuring to me. Right. Well, it's also the problem with, the Bush, uh, with, with Jeb Bush in general is that he, he gets a flack for raising so much money and thinking he can buy the, uh, the nomination, and then he gets flack for not being able to do it, sometimes from the same people. So <laughs> it's just, you know, this poor guy, if he, if he wins, it's, wow, well, you bought it. And if he lost, like, what a loser. He can't even buy it. Um, but the reality <laughs> is that he had one, you know, he had one shot, right, like everybody else. He was up there on the dais with everybody else. And uh, that first debate, and he kind of like was like, eh, okay. And after that, like you know, people want they want you to work for it. They want you to work hard for it. So I think it's important that we take a break to discuss the great courses. Uh, the great courses is a is an effort to help people learn after school because for many of us, our love of learning doesn't stop after we finish school, and that's why. We are big fans of The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. We recommend that you watch The Great Courses collection of lecture series geared toward professionals, including Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. These courses offer valuable tools and insights to help strengthen presentation skills Become a better negotiator or sharpen our memory, which uh, God knows I need right now because I now can't remember what I said two minutes ago. Um, And celebrating its uh, 25th anniversary, The Great Courses offers lecture series on over 500 subjects, including history, science, art, music, and more. Available in DVDs, CDs, streaming, digital downloads, or with The Great Courses apps. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for Glop Culture listeners. Order any of these four business and presentation courses. That, again, scientific secrets for a powerful memory, my need, how conversation works, which uh, I don't need, art of public speaking, which Jonah doesn't need, and influence mastering life's most powerful skill, which Rob needs, uh, for just $9.99. For nine, wait, for nine dollars, I could be an influencer. I'm, I'm yeah, signing you need up. to be an influencer, Rob, because yeah. you don't have enough influence. You and your mainstream media Hollywood liberal yeah. friends, you're just yeah. not. You don't yeah. giving ninety percent of your dollars to Hillary Clinton. You don't have enough influence. So this special price of nine ninety five is only available for a limited time. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com yes. slash glop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash. G-L-O-P, which again stands for Goldberg, Long Podhoritz. That's thegreatcourses.com slash glop. So, you know, John, I'm, I'm, very, yeah. I'm very glad that you clarified what The Great Courses is because in this day and age, I think a lot of people will be confused and might think it is a reference to one of Donald Trump's most fantastic golf courses, right? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. The Great or Courses class, are huge. Great or of course at the, at the Trump University. That's right. Or, that's right. Um, Wasn't he way, like doing learning annex stuff too before? Oh yeah, two hundred forty-nine dollars he would charge for you to get his, you know, get his uh, secrets, the secrets to his great success, which apparently include getting a million-dollar loan from their dad. Old, 
Don't steal smart joke. Uh, yeah. you, how, how to, you could be a millionaire and never pay taxes. I'll tell you well, how. First, by the, way, is, <laughs> by the way, the thing about what Trump said this morning about the about you know getting a loan from his dad is like that is literally like the famous joke, right? The joke is, how do you get $2 million? Well, first start with a million dollars. Right. First get a million dollars. That was the old Steve Martin. Million dollars. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Wait, uh, I just said that. As, yeah. You yeah. just said that. Is this on? Is this on? <laughs> no, is this on? <laughs> I, right there. I can hear you breathing. Okay. It's an audience or an oil painting? <laughs> You'll be here all week. Don't eat the yeah. meal. Yeah. Although I, 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 hey, John, do you ever yeah. hear one about the, uh, the uh, guy who gives a piece of matzah to the blind guy? And the blind guy says, who writes this stuff? <laughs> I, I have heard that, and it, felt, and it was well told, particularly for a family audience, since the <laughs> stuff is not actually yeah. the, the mot juste for the punchline. But, uh, I understand. But, you know, I, 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 view, I used this analogy last week, I think, and in, in a couple of other uh, – I hope I didn't do it on the last podcast, but talking about Trump and Bush – and uh, with the uh, coming release of the uh, full-length animated Peanuts movie, um, there seems to be very little question that what we have here with Trump and Bush and with Hillary and the Benghazi committee and all this is Trump with, <laughs> with football and Jeb running up to kick the football and, and Trump pulling it away every time. Like Trump, you know, Trump troll. There's nothing that Trump can't do that will not push a button of Bush's that will make Bush that will redound to Trump's, you know, credit. Um, you know, and I think that's what happened with what happened this weekend. And I think it's what happened with Hillary and the Benghazi committee. You know, she's like sitting there in front of the Benghazi committee and they're like, she's here. She's here. This is our big chance. This is our big chance. And they're like, they run up there. They're like, what did you do on the night of September 11th? And she says, I went home. And they would say, you went home? And she said, yes, I went home. And they're like, no one saw you that night? And she's like, no, no one saw me that night. And then it's like, well, my time has expired. <laughs> well, yeah, but also I love the idea that they, they thought that, well, we're going to put her up here for 23 hours. Like, actually, it would have been better just to pick five questions and have her on there for an hour. Because then you get to you get to ask the questions and then adjourn the meeting. You don't have to sit there and give a tw- you know whatever it was eight hours worth of testimony for people to sift through. Because there's only there are only really two questions. One one is why did you tell the father and America and a, the father of one of the uh, killed Americans a lie that you knew was a lie. And just keep asking that question. That's all you need to do. You don't need to ask any other questions like how come this person didn't have your email address or any of that stuff. Just that – that's the only question. And they – and it's, it's why with six hours of testimony, half of it uh, – you know, all the Republicans or conservatives who hate Hillary Clinton have enough to chew on. And now they're all outraged because the, the sort of the protectorate class, the sort of uh, the Praetorian press guard of Hillary Clinton refuses to acknowledge it because they've got six hours they can, they can, they can uh, focus on. Just pick one hour. Make it – Make it count and then dismiss the witness. That's what I say. And as you know, I am – well, I'm not lic- a licensed trial attorney in the state of New York, but I still have an opinion. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I find this whole topic so unbelievably depressing because it was, it was so obviously going to be a missed opportunity going in. You know, the, the second Trey Gowdy decided to not either hire a real prosecutor 
to do all of the interrogations like Mike Chertoff did on Whitewater or like they did in Watergate. Or the, and the second that it became one of these five-minute opening statements kind of things, it just you just knew it was going to be a mess. And why Jim Jordan waited until three hours in when everyone had already written their story about the piece. I mean, I, have, I had a friend who was in the press gallery at um, uh, at the hearings or in the in the it was in the room, and he said that you know he, he looked over and he saw one prominent reporter during the hearings buying shoes on her laptop <laughs> and um, they were all sending in their copy. And so the narrative of Hillary Clinton comes in with poise and grace and does so well was written in the first hour. And Jim Jordan waited several hours to get to this thing, which was actually a, 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 a legitimate smoking gun. I mean, Hillary Clinton right. was caught red handed lying about the, you know, the fact that she knew this wasn't about the video it was it was demonstrable, but the, as you put it, the Praetorian press, you know, their response to this is to turn themselves into friggin' theater critics and talk about her poise and all of that. Because and it, so it just the whole thing was just an unbelievable wasted opportunity and depresses me greatly. Well, it was yeah, very but, depressing. But, yeah. but the simple fact of the matter is that these hearings are theatrical. It doesn't matter what she says or what she doesn't say. the The material is the material. Uh, having her respond to it is a way of, you know, g- getting her to do gotcha or in theory, in very, very broad theory to catch her in a perjury trap so that someone can indict her for lying before Congress like that is ever going to happen the right. day before uh, the Justice Department dismisses all possibility of prosecuting Lois Lerner. Like the Justice Department's going to turn around and indict the, you know, almost certain nominee for Democratic Party's president, you know, for the presidential, you know, for <laughs> the president of the United States. Like, that's ever going to happen. So they don't need to catch her in a perjury trap. They had the email, the Chelsea, the email to Chelsea that said it was an Al-Qaeda thing. And they have, they know, we know that she said this to Tyler Woods' father at, at, um, at Devon Air Force Base. So why don't they just leak it? Why don't they just leak it so they get the story right. right instead of like getting her, you know, having her say, "Well, I don't remember that," or you know, "Well, I people say a lot of things in email." I mean, the notion that you're going to have a moment like you know uh, in Billy Madison, where when when Bradley Whitford can't answer the question, he pulls out, you know, in the big debate, he pulls out a gun and starts shooting <laughs> into the audience. That's not going to happen in real life. No, but I. But what's weird is like you, you, you know, it's a show. It's like such a strange thing. It's like you, you've as Jonas, Jonas said, like you haven't leaked it, you haven't written a report, um, you haven't sat down to give a press briefing. You're you're putting on a show. You know that the people are going to be watching. The first rule of show business is always leave them wanting more. Don't overstay your welcome. Uh, figure out what the, the the big moments you need, and then just do those moments and get out. And this like weird. I mean, they deserve to lose. They're so flat footed. Like, the, how boring was it? Just uh, you've got as Jonah said, you got a smoking gun. Lead with that. Lead with that. It's what it's part of what we do when you're like. I always tell to writers I'm working with, or or mo- even movie scripts, or, but especially TV pilots. It's like don't save anything. 
don't you know, sometimes they'll have a great scene or great moment. They go, oh, I want to put that in like episode five or episode nine, or that's really how I'm gonna close season one. It's like, buddy, you don't have a season one. You don't even have an episode two. Put all the goodies in episode one. That's twenty minutes of fun laughter, and then get out and hope that you will figure out something for episode two if you're if you're lucky enough. Anyway, and that's my show business rant for the day, or at least no, but look, no, but look, minute. when the nine eleven committee hearing started, they had Condoleezza Rice as their first witness, and they said to her, "Can you read this presidential, you know, this presidential security brief from August sixth, the month before the?" And she said, "Yes." And what's it headline? You know, it's uh, Al Qaeda determined to attack in the United States. Everyone, aha! You see, you knew, you knew, and you didn't do anything, right? That and that set the entire tone. For the hearing, so is so it, it's Trey Gowdy's fault. Everyone's oh, Trey Gowdy's so wonderful. Trey Gowdy started the hearing. He left the question about the Chelsea email to Jim Jordan three hours later. Why didn't he lead with it? Right. They all they wanted to do. They started wanting to. They wanted to establish to begin with that she didn't care a lot about Libya in 2012. Who that cares, seemed to be their yeah. major point: is that she was trying to wash her hands of it. So they're trying to establish a narrative. And then there's all this stuff about how she wasn't being loyal to the Obama White House by having Sidney Blumenthal work for her. Who cares about that? Right. What, what is the loyalty of uh, – Also, of, America does not her, care who Sidney Blumenthal is. Right. Well, I mean I certainly don't care. I mean I know Jonah cares who he is, but I, I don't. I mean neither Jonah nor I really care. I mean we, we care in the sense that you know we would, we would like his work to be permanently remaindered. But – but, I mean, one doesn't care about Sidney Blumenthal per se, and certainly one doesn't care about the internal workings of the posturings and politics of the fight between Hillary Clinton and, you know, and the White House about Sidney Blumenthal's guidance on Libya. I mean, it's not that it's not important. I, I don't mean that it's not important. I mean that in terms of trying to establish a narrative that yeah. Wait people a outside Washington Jonah, and outside us can erupted. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 John, I take all of your points, and I think you're basically right about the criticisms of the hearing, right? Which I, I think was a debacle. But let me just, for the moment, make the case that Sidney Blumenthal matters, right? Because Sidney Blumenthal is really one of the most horrible people in the world, <laughs> and I mean, uh, I mean, the most impressive thing about him is the way he can dislocate his jaw to swallow rats. Hole. And um, <laughs> well, he has to because he has none of the. He doesn't have the, the molars that you have. But go ahead. You know, and I have a copy somewhere in this mess in here of Government by Gunplay. I wrote a column about this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, his book, book from 1974. Yeah, 76. The CIA, killed, CIA killed Kennedy. Right, and, and that um, you know, and it's co- among the contributors are Phil Agee, you know, who was you know a commie spy, and. Uh, Phil, Philip Agee, you should tell people because people don't remember. Phil, Philip Agee was an ex-CIA agent who was directly responsible for the murder of the Athens station chief of the CIA because he named him um, in, a, in, a, in a book or in an article or something like that. And two weeks later, Robert Welsh, who was, the, who was this uh, CIA agent in Athens, was, was assassinated. Yeah, and I mean, Philip so- Agee lived in Cuba. And uh, was a notable co- contributor to the Nation magazine. In case you're wondering, you know whether or not the Nation magazine deserves all of its, you know, celebrated history as a as a as a Stalinist rag. It does, right? Uh, so my, my own is Carl Oglesby, who's like the leading conspiracy theorist of the JFK assassination. Um, 
anyway, Blumenthal has always lived in these swamps, and it is a case study of how how much easier it is for people from the true fever swamp left can insinuate themselves into the mainstream media and into the corridors of power in a way that, you know, there is no way a John Bircher um, could possibly rise to the kind of prominence inside the beltway that Sid Blumenthal has. And Sid Blumenthal um, is like the most famous maligner and whisperer and rumor mongerer in Washington. And the fact that Hillary Clinton, who was told outright by Rahm Emanuel, you know, you cannot hire this guy. It says something profound, I think, and serious about her judgment and the kind of person she is, that she basically used him as this cutout in her own private security, uh, you know, intelligence system. Um, and it, it, to me, it is just an incredibly damning thing about Hillary Clinton that she likes his worm tongue act so much <laughs> that she is willing to sort of keep him on and not and the fact that she's not paying a political price for it is is truly dismaying. I mean, this guy should be pelted out of polite society with rocks and broken bottles. That is absolutely true. But Rob is right. That is that if you want to if you want to have an effective hearing that does its job in terms of in you know in terms of illuminating to the American people why Hillary Clinton needs to be held yeah, partly right. or you know somewhat accountable for the all. lies yeah. that you told the American for people. Most of America, you stick to her. You stick yeah, to I agree. her. I agree. And, and, and for most of America, they needed. Yeah, well, for most of America, everything that happens, everything that happens outside the house is TLDR. Right? Too long didn't read. And just give me the just 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 break it down for me quickly. Um, and sometimes it's breaking down for me quickly because I want to go back to watching TV and eating potato chips. And sometimes it's breaking down for me quickly because I, you know, I'm busy. I have a family. I got stuff to do. And by the time I sit down to catch up, I'm tired and I just want a, a five minutes. And I, or I want it in an entertaining fashion, like uh, um, like uh, like the old Daily Show, the new Daily Show. I don't think it's as entertaining. But that, uh, uh, so if that's the case, you could either fight and scream and holler. And stamp your feet the way some politicians do, or you can um, figure out what you really need to convey to the American people, which is that she is a liar, that she lied to them. This woman lied to you to your face and then put an American citizen in prison um, for no reason, and when she knew it was no reason, for political gain. Um, feels to me like that's – just keep saying that over and over and over again. I don't need to hear about anything else. The weird thing about Sidney Blumenthal, though, just, just to go back to him, even though I said I didn't care about him, is these are – like the Clintons are famously disloyal, right? They are famously disloyal to everybody. If you cross them, if you, if you, don't, um, if you don't support them, if you do anything, they will punish you. They are a classically disloyal, cut-you-off um, kind of uh, political machine for some reason. This liability for everybody. I mean, I don't think Joan. I don't think that there are, there are. It's not like there are people on the left saying, "Yeah, you know, he's he's tough, but Sidney's really great." I think everybody hates this guy, but for some reason he stays with them, and I don't know why. He, I mean, if anything came out of that um, that uh, what that one day uh, snooze fest, it was besides the fact that she's a li- liar. That Sidney Blumenthal is a liability. Any politician at that point would say, "Up, oh, sorry, Sid, you're out." Right, but I think, but I think that's Jonah's point, which is that there is something very, very peculiar about this relationship with him, 
um, that it would be nice if at some point those of us who are completists in Clinton Clintonology <laughs> could finally at some point get to the bottom of like why him? I mean, I understand that he's you know an unbelievable sycophant, but we know from those emails that there were plenty of unbelievable sycophants you know around willing right. to sing the most you know right. stomach churning praises of her. Um, and I'm sure she likes it, but, you know, he was just one of them. And why she would also, you know, essentially outsource a lot of her foreign policy on Libya to this guy and this other guy, Tyler Drumheller, Tyler Drumheller is, is, is really not clear. And I'm not sure they'll ever, they'll ever get to the bottom of it. But um, just, just, just because you raised it, I, I do also, because it's my favorite thing of all of the emails, is the Lanny Davis email to Hillary. Where oh, it's, it's just golden. It's so fantastic. So for those of you who don't know, Lanny Davis, who has been spinning for the Clintons to the point of risking scrotal torsion for decades, has carried more water than Gunga Din for the Clintons, writes her this <laughs> fawning email saying, not only are you – and keep saying it's okay to say no like every third sentence. You know, It's all right to say no. I'll totally understand. I won't – I'll still respect you more than anything. She, he says that – as you know, I consider you my best friend and really the best person I know, which must have been very tough for Lanny Davis's wife and kids to read, right? And and it goes on and it says, and I, but I, I have this big favor to ask you. This is a three-page letter of such proctological sycophancy that um, it's yeah. just unbelievable. And the ask, the big ask is that there's some guy writing a piece for American Lawyer. Um, doing a profile of Lenny Davis's new law firm, and all he wants from Hillary Clinton is a soundbite saying Lenny's a good friend, he does good work, or something along with some kind of endorsement. And after three pages of sucking up, saying this is you are the best person I know, she says no. <laughs> and it yeah. won't even tell <laughs> the American lawyer Lenny Davis. It won't even have some anodyne sort of boilerplate thing. Um, which no one would, which would have surprised no one, right? But after in the trenches, you know, like slogging through Clinton sewage, like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, she won't <laughs> even give a quote to the American lawyer. It was, it was fantastic. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, there's got to be a story there, right? There's got to be, <laughs> and that can't be just I'm too busy. It's got to be something else. Um, speaking of something else. Yes, Jonah, are you, are you overpaying for drugstore razor blades? Because that's a bad habit, and you should leave it behind and make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience. Uh, they have sent uh, all of us, I think. They've sent us all little gift packs just to get, get started. They are fantastic. Um, I now see them in, in hotels. They sell them in little bags. The Harry's shave thing is, is great, and uh, it comes with a bunch of different – you can have the lotion, you can have the gel, you can have the aftershave, you can have the thing and the whatever. Uh, they're great. And you don't have to go stand at CVS anymore and wait for someone and point through the, the, the security plastic at the blades you want. Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany, and that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century by cutting out the middleman. Or I guess in German, in that factory in German, Germany, they say the Mittelmensch. They can offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore brands, and they ship the blades right to your door at factory direct prices. Their starter set is just fifteen dollars, which includes a razor, three blades, your choice of Harry shave cream or foaming shave gel. I believe, J John, you prefer the gel. That's interesting. I like the gel. I'm a gel man. Yes. 
as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code uh, uh, GLOP, G-L-O-P, GLOP. After using that, that code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Shipping is free because, of course, shipping is free now whenever you buy online, which is a good, good thing. And um, you don't have to – again, you don't have to go to CVS. And the satisfaction is guaranteed. So go to harrys.com now and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code Ricochet with your first purchase. Oh, sorry, Glop, I think, with your first purchase. That's harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code Ricochet at checkout for $5 off and start shaving smarter today. I suppose I should have said at some point at the beginning of this podcast, if you are listening and you are a Ricochet member, welcome. We are pleased to have you. If you are not a Ricochet member, please go to ricochet.com. Check us out. Sign up for the Daily Shot. It's our daily email blast that gets uh, all the news you need that day in your email inbox. You can read it quickly. It's funny. got some great jokes in it. You will win any argument you encounter with a crackpot liberal progressive uh, armed with the, the wit and wisdom in the Daily Shot. So go to uh, ricochet.com, check us out, and we're glad to have you listening to Klopp. So, gentlemen, among the many weirdnesses of the current media moment um, uh, is the way in which uh, Twitter, uh, something just sort of lands on Twitter, and in like 45 minutes, 15,000 people are suddenly obsessed with the subject and making jokes about it and making jokes about the jokes and jokes about the jokes and jokes about the jokes. So last Thursday, I think, four or five days ago, came the baby Hitler meme that arrived because the New York, the New York Times magazine, of all places, put out a tweet that said, we asked NYT mag readers, if you could go back and kill Hitler as a baby, would you do it? After which, everybody on Earth started madly tweeting baby Hitler jokes and baby this gen. I wouldn't kill Hitler, but I would kill baby George Lucas, or I would kill George Lucas between uh, Return of the Jedi and the beginning of the sequels, or I would, I would do this, or I would kill that baby, or I would kill this baby, and I found this very interesting because, of course, I found myself in the middle of making jokes like this. And then it occurred to me not to be, like, too lame, but, you know, 40, almost 50 years ago when Mel Brooks made The Producers and did Springtime for Hitler, the whole point of the scene in which Hitler dances on a Broadway stage and everybody sings about Hitler was – to shock everybody beyond all possible measure with the thing that would be in the worst taste of anything <laughs> right, on earth. Right. That was the whole point of the producers right. was make what a flop. you do that make would be yeah. so sickeningly distasteful <laughs> that the entire world would riot, right? That was the point. And here we are, it's sort of 50 years later, and now mention Hitler and it's almost like you're kind of expecting a joke to follow it. It's like baby who would kill baby Hitler or this, you know, amazing clip from this West German movie called Downfall, which is about the last 10 days of Hitler in the bunker, which is a really remarkable movie. And there's this little, you know, two minute scene in it when Hitler loses his temper. And this has now become a meme where people subtitle it. You know, it's always like Hitler finds out that. Uh, Chick-fil-A, you know, is against gay marriage, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Hitler well, he was a vegetarian, so he wouldn't care about that. But I, I take right. your point. Yeah. And, and 
I just wonder whether, you know, something has happened here where we are, and, you know, of course, then there's the whole point about how everyone compares everything to Hitler, and that's this, you know, sort of, like, lessens the monstrosity that Hitler was, and not only the, you know, murder of six million Jews, but the sort of destruction of, of, of Central Europe, the, you know, the fact that 60 million people uh-huh. died in World War II, well, or of which he was solely responsible. Right. Well, but, but baby Hitler, I mean, the phrase baby Hitler is funny, right? I mean, right. The, the phrase, the, 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 those two words together are kind of funny. I mean, so, and, and what I like about it is that, is that it is a kind of a, kind of a, dinner party or casual thing, you know, it, it has a feel of an undergraduate, you know, late night dorm session. Okay, I'm against murder, but if you could, like, everyone's had that conversation about a time machine. It's kind of fun that people uh, who don't even know each other were having that hashtag conversation, or, or, or did you find it offensive? Are you one of those? I'm just raising, I'm raising it because oh, I didn't it. find I didn't find it offensive to begin with because I'm sort of like you, which is I feel like things that are funny have their own, almost have their own internal justification even when they're tasteless. Yeah, because because Special. that's what humor is. But but um, but I just wonder. I don't know. There's well, something. Jonah, about, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a little. I mean, I, I, I think that last point you made about how things that are funny have their own internal. Logic is right because this all happened basically amidst this supposed terrible controversy of Ben Carson talking about how the Jews of Germany should have been armed or whatever, and that elicited waves of outrage. Or Bibi Netanyahu, you know, overstepping a bit and talking about how the Mufti of Jerusalem was the guy who gave Hitler the idea of the Holocaust, and waves of outrage. And um, so it does seem like there is still capacity in different lanes. For people to have muster outrage and at at the invocation of of Nazism or the Holocaust and whatnot, and I don't know, it's a little bit of far afield. But one of the things that sort of drives me crazy, maybe this stems in part from the fact that I wrote a whole book that touches on the history of people using the word fascist and Nazi inappropriately. But um, you know, our friend Pete Weiner, a uh, contributor to commentary, wrote a piece in the New York Times really taking Carson to the woodshed over, over all that. And I'm, I'm, I think Pete is absolutely right on the, the, the basic merits of his point that, you know, Carson it was hyperbolic and it was rhetorical overkill, even though there's a perfectly valid point to be made about how People with guns are better, are more likely to be able to defend themselves from a tyrannical state, and I'm in favor of all that. But at the same time, what I kind of what kind of drives me crazy is that there is a long and rich history. You know, Pete says that that it is does it, it discredits conservatism when Carson talks like this. You know, my problem is, is you know, FDR talked like that about Republicans. Harry Truman talked like that about Republicans. Bill Clinton talked like that that about Republicans. And you never hear liberals step up and say, well, this discredits liberalism. And yet what Carson said, which I think is, you know, again, overdone, but, you know, there's a there's a perfectly legitimate point in there. We get our guys who just go batty about how outrageous it is. And I, I think that so I, mean, my, I guess my only point is that there's this there, there's a whole maelstrom of competing eddies of cognitive dissonance and whatnot when it comes to these conversations and you, if you stay purely in the humor lane, it can work, but I don't think it's proof that the other lanes 
um, are all that affected by it one way or the other. Right, but what you're saying essentially, if I if I understand you correctly, is that is that uh, Hitler is a perfect forum now, or a perfect sort of you know object lesson in selective outrage that you use yeah, Hitler when you right. wanna when you wanna sort of say so and so is you know beyond <laughs> all bounds of propriety. <laughs> it's like Hitler's like the good China. You only use it. <laughs> When really want to make the point. No, like, like, good China. Remember, remember, remember Gutfeld? I mean, Gutfeld also used to have those rants, so they would always end, and that's why you were worse than Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and they were actually very funny um, because they sort of pointed out a problem in sort of left-wing rhetoric. But, Can I but, ask a question, though? Is it apocryphal that uh, – I mean I – this may be – I don't know why. I, I guess I, should, I could check it out myself, but I may uh, – you know, I got you on the line. Um I remember hearing a story that in the emptying of the Warsaw Ghetto, there were two Lugers there. I need more information. No, the two uh, Lugers held held it off held held off like a little street for um, you know I don't know twelve hours no, because like in, in, in yeah, they were very, urban they were warfare you know a, a couple hand I mean I'm not I'm not really making yeah. a big argument here but a couple handguns in urban warfare. Can uh, can do an amazing amount of defensive, you know. The, the, right, the, right. Well, this is a very this is a, look. This is an immensely complicated issue because one wishes to celebrate acts of extraordinary heroism and courage and resistance, like the Warsaw get like the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and uh, the partisans of Vilna, and there are very many, many, you know, there are four or five major cases in which. Uh, there was Jewish resistance to you know to to their slaughter, but of course the story of that resistance is that it failed. I mean, it didn't fail yeah, no. because it, its purpose wasn't to succeed and to liberate the Jews of Warsaw. It was to say, "We will not be taken." Yeah. The, the issue, I think, with Carson, in my experience, you know, this all started with Carson saying, if he had been in the classroom in Oregon, that he <laughs> yeah. would have charged the shooter. Right on the grounds that if you know you're going to die, then you might as well charge the shooter. Well, this is where I got off the boat with Carson and found found this to be an outrage because, of course, a people in the classroom did not know that they were going to die. There was no they you, they you don't know in a situation like that whether or not that guy is going to shoot you, whether someone's going to about to come through the door, whether right. if you rose up to fight him, you would get in the way of somebody else who was rising up to fight him. <laughs> well, you know what yeah, I mean. I no, but let me let yeah. me finish. Let, <laughs> I'm let, not let sure. Finish. I'm not sure that in that situation, thinking, well, I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, get in the way of somebody else's heroism. Well, you're I'm not. not sure. <laughs> the, the is, the I just want to be the big hero pig. I, uh, somebody else could go now. I don't, no, you know. But I'm, the armchair presumption here is that you, in that you, that that the the default position of humankind should be to do something heroic, right? To, to in the face of possible or near certain death, to stand up and try to fight back. The reason right. that we view such acts as heroic is that they are done on rare occasions by people who seem to have risen above what it is rational to expect people to do in situations like that. And to be, you know, including in, you know, in the midst of battle, in the heat of battle, that's why we, you know, elevate certain people who fight. But what was amazing about those three bros on that train uh, was that they, they were kind of acting out of their own training. That right. was what's cool about it was that it was like the I remember hearing the guy say later that when he 
when the uh, he, when he went to help the person who was shot in the neck, and he stuck his you know he put his finger there to hold yeah. it. The, the, he said, "Wow, it had totally worked, just like the training said." And you know everybody laughed because he said, "I think he made it said on Jimmy Fallon or one of those." Everybody laughed because he even he seemed surprised that the training worked. But that kind of made those guys even cooler. Was that they were they were trained? I mean, but I'm just saying I, I know from so, emails so wait, and experience. So yeah. Yeah. So my question, John, is: Do you, uh, besides when you kill baby Hitler? Yeah. Would you charge the guy? I I would hope that I would, but I have no idea how on earth how on earth that's the point right. about right. Ben Carson and the immodesty of what he said. Jonah, so no idea whether he would charge the shooter. Jonah, let me ask you this you. question. Jo- Jonah, yeah. would you you think that John would charge the guy? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think the question answers itself. <laughs> I, you, know, you know, I could tell you an anecdote about how my about how my my uh, babysitter's brother came to the front door of my apartment building when I was fourteen years old, waving a gun and demanding to be let in, and I actually had to talk him down and send him away while he was standing there in front of a locked glass door with a pistol in his hand. Oh. But I won't. I, I'll forbear from telling. You won't- do you want to tell that story? Wow. About my about about, about my, my, my longtime babysitter and, 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 and her brother Guy. So I I could tell it, but I'm not going to tell it. In any case. But the real question uh, is you were fourteen and you had a babysitter? No, the person who like my nanny when I was growing up who was no longer working with us, who was no longer working with the family. Okay? Right. So there you go. So I could tell that story, but I'm not going to. We have been made a, a very nice commitment. By the Casper Mattress Company. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Anyone who's bought a mattress knows they're sort of overpriced. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers to pay notoriously high markups. And Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost by dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. You know, there are cabs, uh, they're, they're advertising now in New York everywhere. It's kind of cool. Why should you buy a Casper mattress online? Three reasons. Quality. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper mattress is one of a kind, a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Our uh, Ricochet's own uh, uh, James Lilix is a Casper mattress believer. He speaks eloquently about it on the flagship podcast. He's now about two. The cost. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for queen, $950 for a king-sized, and I guess that's probably California kings around there too. Casper understands that buying a mattress online can have consumers wondering how this is possible, and that's convenience. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. Statistically, lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right bed for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that in all reality you spend a third of your life on. I did have one creepy – I bought a mattress once. I had a creepy mattress salesman who kept saying, just lie down on it. Just just go on. Lie down on it. Stretch out on it. It was so weird. Like, I don't want to lie down on it. Just lie down on it. Sir, really, lie down on it. It was horrible. Um, Casper mattress. I don't know why I took that detour. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Casper mattresses are made in America. 
There's a special officer, offer to listeners of Glob Podcast. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash glop, G-L-O-P, and using the code word glop at checkout. The terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com slash glop with the coupon code glop at checkout. And we thank Casper Mattresses for sponsoring this episode of Glop Culture. Here, here. Beautiful. To descend from the <laughs> ridiculous into the even more ridiculous, um, I, I want, as we close, to ask the very important question of whether or not you guys believe that there is merit to the argument, first advanced at extreme length by Jonathan V. Last in the Weekly Standard about 13 years ago, but revived in the in the in the wake of the many trailers and the reaction to the trailer for Star Wars The Force Awakens, the seventh Star Wars movie, about whether or not the actual heroes of the Star Wars films are not the Jedi, but rather the Empire. And I would, li- I would like to know what, what wisdom you can impart. Jonathan argues that, in fact, oh. the, Empire is, the Empire is just. Uh-huh. But not, but the Jedi are unjust. That the um, Jedi are. I, I lost you on the question. Was that to me? But to both of you. So the question was: Are the Jedi's the bad guys in Star Wars? Really, like Jonathan last argues? Oh. Jonah, your answer. Yes. Okay. So I think, um, I think Jonathan last original piece about the in defense of the Empire was really brilliantly done. But I reading his follow up piece i guess it's at the federalist right about how the jedis are really the bad guys and i think the ultimately the problem with it is that it exposes not so much the hidden meaning you know he's got sort of this straussian thing where he's like aha i figured out what the Jedi the jedis are really the bad guys and for that to be a persuasive argument it hinges it, ha- it has to assume that the prequels were actually really well written and that this was an intended esoteric thing going on in the background and that there's this inherent consistency in the way they thought through the Jedis that they fooled a lot of people. When in reality, I think what it just simply exposes is how badly written a lot of these movies were. And, uh, and so you can find examples of this stuff to back up your case. Yeah. And it's not, it's not the reality of the Jedi. It's the reality of the crappy planning that went into this. And part of the problem, look, I mean, part of the problem is that what was so brilliant about the first Star Wars and, and, and what the second two sort of fed off of was, you know, the incredible power of myth, right? I mean, that was the, that was the real point of George Lucas's thing with Star Wars. It wasn't really sci-fi. It was, it was, uh, in a way, a reimagining of some really old myths and mythic narrative. And, and so, therefore, like, the Jedi character is a lot like the sort of the aged samurai who's, you know, gone off. Those kinds of things work. But when you try to build up a logical, consistent, political narrative around that stuff, if you're not really, really good, you end up just sort of feeding your opponents or your critics reasons to say, look, this isn't really well, all that well thought through. And I wrote about this a bit in commentary when I wrote that piece about Battlestar Galactica. You know, George Lucas and those guys completely threw out the entire theology and philosophy of Star Wars just to take a cheap, stupid shot at George Bush. <laughs> you know, there's this there's this line where they say where, you know, uh, where young Anakin Skywalker, young Darth Vader says to Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're either with me or you're against me. 
which was a clear reference to George Bush's you're either with us or you're against us stuff about terrorism. And Obi-Wan Kenobi shoots back, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Well, wait a second. We've now spent hundreds (laughs) of millions of dollars worth of movies, right, on the whole idea that there's a dark dark side of the Force and a light side of the Force. And the dark side is evil and the light side is good. And all of a sudden, just to get this cheap shot out there, they throw away that entire foundational idea of the whole series – just to get in a little cheap shot. And that is, I think, a bit, that is the real problem with all of these things. I can think of, I can give you lots of examples. And I know John really wants to say, hold me like you held me at, <laughs> on the shores of Lake Naboo. Right. Um, that is what badly brings, written. What you to Naboo, Dooku? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's I, right. No, I hate sand. But I would like to say two things, one of which is that the original Star Wars is a comedy. That's the thing that people forget. It's an action comedy yeah, right. about That's a kid good. from the provinces. That's, I, 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 I agree with that. ends up out of nowhere with another guy who you know, has a rich. Rickety- I just got cut off again. No, you didn't. We're just ignoring you. <laughs> it's a subtle distinction. <laughs> anyway, so it's a rickety. So he's, a, he's on a he's on a rickety spaceship with this guy who's got a who's got a gorilla friend that he's got a broken robot and all this. And they like they take down you know they 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 take down this giant enemy Warcraft. That's the whole point of it. It's an action comedy about about the the kid from nowhere who like wins the war for the for the good guys. Then in the second movie, which they decide to go dark with, the whole thing starts to unravel a bit there. With the decision to make Darth Vader Luke's father, which means somehow that, he, you know, it's not just happenstance that he was, you know, on this planet out of nowhere. But this was mm-hmm. all part of some giant, right? You know, giant, you know, uh, universal design that ends up with how the Force, which is just supposed to be something you can find if you're a person. Yeah. Spirit is something that's in your blood and you have metachlorians, you have special... Yes. And aristocracy. I don't know why it's either or. I mean, only a Sith deals in absolutes. I personally believe that uh, neither one is that great. This is all sort of ancient stories of these ancient. Like, like, well, I guess yeah. Uh, you know, King Louis was better than King Philip, but who cares? Like, I, I guess the 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 good versus evil clash um, that this most re- resembles to me is uh, the Benghazi hearings. I know you. <laughs> Well, Bullethal is a Sith Lord, right? Look at it this way. Like, yes, Hillary Clinton is a liar, right? She is the evil empire, right? But on the other hand, I don't think the Jedi Knights did that did, were that great. Um, I, I would have preferred you know, uh, something else, right? But I don't get that. So um, I, guess I, I guess I just have a more sophisticated very, and very sophisticated. of the world. That's what I, I think it take, is. Now, look, the simple fact of the matter is that the entire <laughs> theory that the Jedi's are the bad guy and the Empire's a good guy is, is totally overthrown by, you know, the, the scene in the first 15 minutes of the movies where, where uh, the, the Empire blows up an entire planet. Oh yeah, and that's where the whole thing is. That's where the whole theory founders like, like America. The first, the first act of the empire is to kill like five billion people, and you know, Leah says, "But we're we don't even have any weapons." And then he says, "Well, if you'd like to give us a military target," and she says, "Well, okay, they're on Alder, you know, they're on they're on Dantooine," and then he says, "Okay, blow up the planet anyway." So basically, I don't see how you can get. From that to their good guys, no matter right. and also, no matter also, what. Uh, 
you come and up. And let, let, let the record show that they also, after they lose the first Death Star, they're still so committed to their desire to be able to blow up innocent planets that they immediately start rebuilding it. <laughs> you know? So they're, they're no, definitely the bad the guys. Problem. That's the problem with, you know... Uh, wait, wait, I just, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Firebombing of Dresden, John. Oh, come on. Baby Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> We're, oh, so you're, you, you think we're better, we're better than the Empire? Excuse me. The firebombing of Dresden was a response. Was it was an act of revenge against the bombing of London? So you would basically. Oh, so you, now, no, no. you know no, what? No. I, I don't, I don't approve. Like, oh, the other. Why other? other you created an other here. You're otherizing the Empire, and I think it's wrong. I refuse to accept that because the the proper analogy would be that the Jedi go and blow up Palpatine's planet. Right? That would be that's Dresden. Be the anointed aristocrats who are genetically uh, better than regular people. Yeah. Yeah, maybe there's a problem there. Hey, listen, can I just um, – before we get – I know we love the Star Wars thing. Can I just – speaking of, 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 of otherizing and good versus evil, I, I saw last week the musical uh, Hamilton. Yes. OK. I just want to make sure I'm still on. Uh, have you seen it, John? I have not seen it yet, okay. no. It is um, spectacular. It is a sign that the culture, for, for certainly from people from our perspective, is alive and well. It is a hip-hop kind of style musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton, which uh, sounded atrocious to me. But by minute one, I was on the edge of my seat and totally, totally, totally wrapped. It takes as its premise – that they, these were great men fighting for a great cause, that freedom was worth fighting for, that they were brilliant thinkers, that they had um, legitimate, uh, legitimate philosophies. It doesn't do any of this sort of undergraduate political science kind of uh, um, only a Sith thinks in absolutes kind of nonsense. Um, it makes uh, it, it makes glancing points about slaves, but but slavery only only because these are points that Alexander Hamilton made in his life. It is uh, it's astonishing. If anybody right of center can march into there, and we will be moved. It is the most patriotic piece of art I have seen in my life. I will say that. Yeah, I, I have I, to say I haven't seen it either, but I've heard almost exactly that from about a half dozen people. I mean, I really want to know, see it. I can't. I literally have not met a single person. You're like the 25th person who told me it's the greatest thing ever. So of course, I so want to hate it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so perverse that I want to hate it. That's all I want to do is hate it. That's all I want. Me too. But and you I go- know I'm not going to, and I'm going to be so disappointed. No, you know what? Here's what I finally decided: why I love it because it is. So corny and so pro-American. I actually tweeted that it's Schoolhouse Rock written by a genius. It is the oh, great. Sounds history. so good. Yeah, it's great. It's great. All right. That's, I just want to end with that. I know we got to run. I know we got to go. Okay, Joe, Joe, you're not talking to anybody, huh? Uh, no, I just, I just, I, I, I got no big speeches coming up. I got nothing to announce. Um, um, uh, for those who are concerned, my new dog is getting along pretty well with my old dog. And uh, but I got to run, so I just want to get that out there. Okay, uh, Rob, you got anything? <laughs> no, seen anyone see anyone go, going anywhere? Got no, no. Okay, I got nothing except, of course, I will be uh, I will be opening for I will be opening for Tony Fields and carrying her leg uh, at the uh, at the journals uh, and I stayed in New York. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Next I, I, I'll have Sarah Bernhardt's other leg. So uh, <laughs> thank you guys. 
for a uh, very interesting. There were a lot of uh, what you don't, what you listeners don't know is that there were a lot of uh, breakups and disappearing people vanishing from our Skype feed and everything. So I hope uh, our produ- our wonderful has a lot of work to do to make this sound like it was a coherent and consistent conversation. So if you enjoy it, thank you. Thank you guys, and we'll uh, we'll we'll gather again to watch Hillary march former continually inexorably toward the presidency. All right, guys. See you later. Bye. You say the price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, but you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember despite our estrangement, I'm your man. You'll be back. Soon you'll see you remember you belong to me You'll be back, time will tell you remember that I served you well Oceans rise, empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Da 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 You say our love is draining and you can't go Subject, my sweet submissive subject, my loyal royal subject, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war. For your love, for your praise And I'll love you till my dying days When you're gone, I'll go mad So don't throw away this thing we had Cause when push comes to shove I will kill your friends and family To remind you of my love da 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 Everybody da 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 Join the conversation.